0: Hi, my name is Alex Purok, and I'm a litigation partner with Troutman Sanders in Atlanta. I want to welcome you to the initial podcast in a series of podcasts that Troutman Sanders and Pepper Hamilton will be producing over the next few weeks to discuss litigation topics that have been brought to the forefront by the COVID-19 pandemic and how businesses might be able to prepare and respond. Today's podcast is going to focus on force majeure provisions and other common law defenses to contractual performance. We will look at when a force majeure arises, how the provision is invoked, other performance excusing defenses that are available to contract parties, and how to respond when you receive a force majeure letter from a contract adversary. Our panel today consists of David Meadows and James Washburn, both litigation partners in the Atlanta office of Troutman Sanders, and Angelo Stio and Jeremy Heap, litigation partners in Pepper Hamilton's Princeton, New Jersey, and Philadelphia offices, respectively. Each of our panelists has extensive experience representing clients in complex commercial matters, including trying cases to verdict over issues of contract interpretation. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, they have each been advising clients on issues related to force majeure. And so I think the best way to start off today is by asking the question that's probably on the minds of almost every party to a contract right now and most of our listeners. And that is, is the COVID-19 pandemic a force majeure event?
1: Uh, So this is James, uh, and I'll give the classic lawyer answer, it depends. Uh, It's helpful to remember what force majeure clauses are. The phrase literally translates as superior force and it refers to unforeseeable causes that are beyond the control of the parties to a contract. A force majeure provision is like a reset button that can relieve the parties of their obligations under the contract. The courts have repeatedly made clear that these provisions are not intended to provide protection to a party against the normal risks of a contract. Courts are generally reluctant to nullify contractual duties, and they construe force majeure provisions narrowly. So the language of force majeure provisions can vary widely, and so whether COVID-19 is a force majeure depends on what the specific contractual provision says and how the pandemic has affected the party's ability to comply with their obligations under the particular contract. To start with the obvious, it's more likely that COVID-19 will qualify as a force majeure if the provision contains language to cover an event like COVID-19. So if the provision includes words like epidemic, outbreak, quarantine, or public health crisis, a court is more likely to conclude that the parties agreed to excuse their respective obligations based on COVID-19. Many force majeure provisions, however, don't include language that are specifically tied to pandemics. Instead, most for force majeure provisions broadly apply to, quote, acts of God. There aren't many court decisions analyzing whether outbreaks of disease will qualify as an act of God. So whether COVID-19 will qualify as an act of God will depend on the law and precedence in your particular jurisdiction. Some courts have recognized that sudden deaths and illnesses or extraordinary events in nature are so unforeseeable that they are considered acts of God and trigger the force majeure provision. One other point that I'll make, when deciding whether to void contractual obligations, most courts will evaluate whether COVID-19 made it impossible or nearly impossible for the party to perform the obligation. If it's not virtually impossible for the party to perform, courts have generally declined to classify an event as force majeure. Financial hardship, or the upending of financial expectations generally is not enough to qualify.
0: So James, you've been discussing and mentioning COVID-19 in and of itself and whether a force majeure clause mentions something like pandemic and epidemic. But I'm wondering about the various government responses that have followed the COVID-19 pandemic. Could the government responses we've seen constitute a force majeure event?
2: Alex, this is Jeremy. I'll um, try to take that one. Um, The answer is yes. A government response certainly can be a force majeure event. As we all know, our country right now is facing a veritable patchwork of complex, sometimes conflicting, difficult to understand regulations at all levels, federal, state, county, municipality. As James explained in his answer, our first stop has to be the plain language of the contract. If that language has words like government regulation, something similar to that, you will have a very strong argument. Now, even if it doesn't include such language, Certainly where there's a full government shutdown of your industry, your arguments are going to be much stronger and you will certainly be able to make out impossibility of performance, one of the elements that uh, James mentioned in his answer. What, though, about a slowdown uh, in your production because of government regulations such as ordering social distancing in a manufacturing line. Well then, similar to what James explained, your case is going to be much harder and and hopefully if you have to try to make out such a case, you'll have some contractual language upon which you can lean.
0: Thank you for that answer, Jeremy. And, And to piggyback on it, you mentioned being able to lean on contractual language to claim a force majeure event. So my next question would be, what happens if a contract doesn't have that kind of language in it at all, if it doesn't have a force majeure clause in it, or if the language in the contract is such that the force majeure clause wouldn't apply? Is it still possible in that case to terminate or at least suspend a contract based on the impacts of COVID-19?
3: Alex, this is uh, David, and the answer to your question is yes, it it could be possible to suspend or terminate even if you don't have a force majeure clause in your contract. The courts, and in some cases state legislatures, have fashioned um, really three separate doctrines that apply um, even if there's no force majeure clause in the contract, and these doctrines can potentially be used to suspend or terminate performance um, under pretty limited circumstances. Um, There are really three of them, and I'm going to discuss each one briefly. They're called impossibility, impracticability, and frustration of purpose. Now, it's important to note that these vary from state to state. Um, So for purposes of today's discussion, we're going to generalize a little bit and focus on some broadly applicable features that I think have been adopted by most courts, but you'll need to check your um, specific state law to see what the standards are where you happen to be. Um, One common thread that's important to understand up front, all of these doctrines are very difficult uh, to successfully invoke. If you, uh, as a party to a contract, are seeking to use one of them, you're going to bear a a high burden of proof in establishing that you're entitled to suspend or terminate. So let's start with impossibility. Um, As its name suggests, impossibility is a doctrine that can excuse performance where some unforeseen event that is outside the control of the parties has made it physically impossible for one or both of them to perform. Now physical impossibility means just that. The performance literally can't be accomplished. Um, So that's been applied by some courts, for example, where after the contract is entered, a new government regulation actually prohibits one of the parties from rendering performance. On the other hand, if the unforeseen event has merely made performance more difficult or more expensive, but it remains possible, you're probably not going to have a case of impossibility. Um, Impracticability is a very closely related doctrine, um, and it often applies under Article 2 of the UCC, which applies to contracts for the sale of goods. Um, This applies where the performance remains physically possible, but there's been some unforeseen event that has so changed the circumstances that the contract cannot reasonably be thought to govern any longer. Now, this, too, is a very limited doctrine, and it applies only where, um, in making the contract, both parties made a basic assumption that certain types of contingencies uh, would never occur, or I should say that the contingency that has arisen in your particular case would never occur. Now, that's a very fact-specific inquiry, and it's difficult to generalize when that applies and when it doesn't. But if we look to um, the Uniform Commercial Code's official comments, it gives us a little bit of guidance. So what we know is that increased cost alone is not going to excuse performance, not going to make it impractical. Um, neither is a rise or collapse in the market itself. Those kind of macroeconomic factors are very rarely going to be sufficient. Um, On the other hand, a severe shortage of raw materials or supplies due to a contingency such as war, embargo, local crop failure, or other unforeseen shutdowns of major sources of supply very well could qualify. So I hope that gives our listeners some sense of the scale of events that we're talking about that would excuse performance under the doctrine of impracticability. Finally, we have a doctrine called frustration of purpose. And frustration applies where performance is physically possible, it can be done, um, but the unforeseen event has so defeated the purpose of the contract that the performance has essentially become worthless to at least one of the parties. Now, for this doctrine to apply, we've got to have a shared purpose, something that both parties to the contract um, either actually understood or a purpose that was so obvious that or apparent that both could be said to have understood them if one of the parties has a very idiosyncratic purpose in its own head, that's not going to be a sufficient basis to invoke frustration. Um, And here again, it's not enough to show that um, events have transpired that made performance more burdensome or more difficult or more expensive. Again, the purpose of the contract must be so utterly defeated that we can say the contract has become worthless. And a quick example, I hope will illustrate this. In 2015, there was an outbreak of the avian flu, which affected um, flocks of egg-laying hens. And uh, there was a case in which the um, party who had contracted to purchase uh, a new egg processing facility sought to evade the contract based on the avian flu, saying that um, it caused it to eliminate over half of its egg-laying hens, and it couldn't fill orders that it had planned to fill from the new egg processing facility. The court held that that all raised a jury trial as to the doctrine of frustration of purpose. So, again, underscoring the very fact uh, intensive nature of this doctrine, a jury was going to have to decide whether the party shared uh, a purpose in contracting to, to construct the egg laying facility and whether that purpose was sufficiently defeated by the outbreak of the avian flu.
4: Hey, uh, hey Alex, could I jump in? I just wanted to add something to uh, David's discussion, which I thought was uh, pretty thorough um, about the uh, common law performance ex- excusing defenses. Um, I have found in my practice that um, oftentimes these defenses uh, may be more helpful to clients than a typical force majeure provision, um, especially when there's insufficient proof of impossibility of performance. In particular, I've I've used this frustration of purpose defense um, in certain situations that otherwise uh, would not be available uh, through a force majeure provision. One of the uh, examples in today's world um, is when you would have a trade group or a trade association book a conference at a hotel. Uh, They also book a group of rooms. Uh, The government shutdown orders would prevent the gathering of uh, individuals at the conference or the conference is canceled. Um, the whole purpose of the individual and the members renting the block of rooms would be to attend the conference. And if the conference is canceled, uh, the purpose of the rooms would be canceled. And I think in that type of instance, the frustration of purpose defense um, would be very helpful to the client and I think would be successful.
0: Thank you, Angelo. So the next question I'd like to ask is whether the occurrence of a force majeure event terminates the entire contract, or if it would just operate to suspend performance of particular contractual obligations.
2: Alex, this is Jeremy. Here again to answer your question, we return to the plain language of the contract. Many clauses provide a very specific answer and actually use the words that you used in your question, terminate, suspend, or similar words like delay. Some of the clauses very specifically say that uh, performance will have to resume upon the conclusion of the force majeure event. Others specifically say, for example, that termination uh, can be invoked at the option of either party after a certain number of days or months. The one thing to remember is that this goes both ways. There are two parties to this contract. Earlier this week, a case was filed in the Los Angeles County Superior Court where the plaintiff, Pacific Collective, invoked force majeure to suspend performance, not terminate, just to suspend performance, and Exxon Mobil terminated in response to the suspension. Now, Pacific Collective, the party that had originally invoked force majeure, is now itself bringing an injunctive action in court in order to stop or try to stop ExxonMobil from terminating. We don't know how this litigation is going to come out yet, but it's an important reminder to all of us to think through, in a contractual situation, all of the chess moves available to both sides.
1: And this is James. I want to echo what Jeremy said about first looking to the language of the contract. Some force majeure provisions are going to state that they apply only to certain specific obligations like shipping obligations, that those can be suspended, but all of the other obligations may continue. Other force majeure provisions may specifically state that they require the obligated party to perform in the face of a force majeure event. And courts are going to enforce the party's intent in executing the contract. If the party's made clear that performance should continue even in um, the wake of a force majeure event, that uh, the fact that the event happened will not overcome that expression of the party's intent. Moreover, even in the absence of express language, parties may rely on other factors to provide evidence of of their intent if there's some ambiguity in the force majeure provision. And most force majeure provisions, because they don't necessarily anticipate all of the possible force majeure events, um, are potentially ambiguous. So extenuating circumstances and other factors may be considered to determine whether and the extent to which a party's performance is excused?
0: So I think a natural question that follows from that, Jeremy and James, is what obligations might be excused or can be terminated? And so the question I have, and maybe, Angelo, if you could respond, would be whether the occurrence of a force majeure event excuses payment obligations or if it excuses other performance obligations as well?
4: Well, I'm, I'm going to start by answering that with a, a common theme that has uh, been uh, expressed by a number of the colleagues here on the podcast is that it's going to depend on the language of the uh, force majeure provision itself. Uh, it's also going to depend on uh, the jurisdiction you're in. Um, many force majeure provisions expressly carve out um, the obligation obligation to make a payment from um, obligations that can otherwise be excused uh, during the pendency of a force majeure event. Um, The purpose of this uh, contract language and this carve out um, is uh, that it will shift the burden of unforeseen uh, consequences to one party, um, and that's a typical way. um, You'll see it in in the contract. um, One I recently saw said, um, notwithstanding anything stated herein, uh, monetary obligations are not otherwise excused by um, a force majeure event. But there are instances where a payment obligation uh, can be excused. Um, Typically, uh, the cases that have dealt with force majeure and an impairment of the payment obligation have broken um, the inability to pay into two categories. The first is um, the inability uh, to process a payment, uh, such as when a government restricts payments to a payee who may be located in a prohibited country. Um, Under this circumstance, typically that payment obligation could be excused because the inability to pay is not within the party parties control. The second uh, category is a lack of sufficient funds because of declining revenues or a downturn in the economy. In that circumstance, uh, the lack of sufficient funds, declining revenue, and I think James alluded to this earlier in his response, has typically been rejected as a basis to excuse uh, performance. Uh, courts are reluctant to categorize the inability to pay um, because of a government shutdown, workforce reductions, or a decline in sales um, as a performance-inducing event, or in this case, impossibility. It's different than when you have a manufacturing plant um, that is shut down and can no longer fulfill its performance obligations to make products. IN ORDER TO uh, REALLY PREVAIL ON THAT PAYMENT OBLIGATION um, DEFENSE, THE PARTY uh, CLAIMING TO BE EXCUSED IS GOING TO HAVE TO uh, SHOW THAT THE FORCE majeure EVENT DIRECTLY PREVENTED THEM FROM MAKING A PAYMENT AND NOT SIMPLY uh, THE PAYMENT WOULD BE uh, UNPROFITABLE uh, OR THEY DON'T HAVE THE FINANCES um, OR THE FINANCES BEEN IMPAIRED BY um, a downturn in the market the other key here when you're trying to analyze the payment obligation is that um, there's a duty to mitigate and a party is going to have to uh, demonstrate that they tried to perform in spite of the force majeure event um, in other words they're going to need to show that they undertook reasonable and sufficient efforts to render contractual performance. It's not usually enough just to say that um, my performance was hindered, uh, my performance uh, was difficult or inconvenience for you to prevail on uh, a defense to a payment obligation or for that matter, any other obligation, unless you have uh, undertaken some reasonable efforts to um, perform.
3: And, Alex, this is David. If I could uh, add just a couple of things um, to Angelo's summary there. Um, first, when we talk about um, an inability uh, to pay or a lack of sufficient funds as, as a potential force majeure, probably a lot of the listeners uh, of our podcast here are small businesses that might be eligible um, for subsidized loans or direct grants under the, the recently passed federal stimulus, the CARES Act and so if any of those sorts of businesses are considering declaring a force majeure when they are the payor under a contract i think they'll need to take into consideration um what the impact of their eligibility for federal funds is obviously um the the counterparties are uh, probably going to be likely to argue that if you can receive or have received federal funds you don't have an inability to pay um and then for that reason, I found in a lot of cases in my own practice that, um, and going back to these extra contractual doctrines that we talked about earlier in the podcast, that frustration of purpose is often a better choice for uh, parties whose only obligation is is to pay under a contract, a better option than is force majeure. The reason for that, as we discussed earlier, is frustration doesn't require a showing of physical impossibility to perform. Rather, the buyer would only have to show that the circumstances have defeated the purposes of the contract so that he or she is paying for something that has essentially become worthless to them. That's still a very difficult standard to meet, but in a lot of cases, it might be a better route to take than trying to invoke a force majeure if you're the payer.
0: Thanks, David. that's really interesting, um, and I think in light of the unique nature of the COVID epidemic and the CARES Act, it's a different wrinkle than you might see in a normal um, circumstance where performance has become impossible or frustrated. Now, we've talked a lot about what to consider in evaluating whether you can avoid your own contractual obligations because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what I'd like to ask each of you now is what you would tell a party to do if they were to receive a notice from a counterparty claiming force majeure, impossibility, or frustration of purpose. And James, uh, if you could go first on this one.
1: Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll just re- retreat to the basic blocking and tackling of uh, legal practice. The first thing I would do is evaluate the notice that I've received um, asserting force majeure and determine whether it complies with the notice requirements in the contract. If it doesn't comply with the requirements, insufficient notice can result in a waiver of the right to, con- to claim force majeure.
3: And Alex, this is David, following up very briefly on what James just said. I think there's a second um, basis on which to evaluate the notice, which is, does the, the force majeure that's being declared by your counterparty match something that's included within the actual force majeure provision? If, for example, you're dealing with a force majeure provision that makes no reference to epidemics or pandemics, you, as the recipient of the notice, might be in a stronger position to challenge it, arguing that the current pandemic or government regulations are outside the scope of the force majeure provision.
2: This is Jeremy. I would just add to the extent there's any ambiguity whatsoever on the basis of the claim of force majeure, As a recipient of the notice, you are fully within your rights to demand uh, that basis, because after all, the party who's declaring force majeure has the burden of proving it. And as a matter of strategy, the more that you know about their basis for the claim, the more that you're going to be able to explore your options to respond, for example. Does it appear that the others the other party's performance is truly impossible? or are they merely relying on the kind of financial hardship that's usually insufficient as our other speakers have described today?
4: So I'll, I'll finish off here this, this question with um, I'd also look at other provisions in the contract um, that may be relevant um, to address the notice, uh, formulated defense, compel payment. Uh, Two of them come to mind. One is uh, time is of the essence provision. Uh, Time is of the essence provision uh, is generally a clause that recognizes that performance by one party uh, by a particular point in time is essential to require the other party to the agreement to perform. There has been cases that have found that um, this type of Uh, times of the essence provision can, in certain circumstances, defeat a claim for impossibility. Uh, The second type of provision I would often see is a hell or high water clause. Um, And this hell or high water clause, you would see in an equipment lease, um, uh, and it shifts the risk of any performance preventing event to one of the parties to the contract. Um, They clause, you will often see language that says the uh, contractual obligation to make payments under the lease are absolute, unconditional, um, or some other words to that effect. Um, And you'd look for those provisions, and finally, um, I'd want to know if there's an arbitration provision and if there is any type of duty to mediate before um, any type of claim is instituted.
0: Thank you. That's all very helpful information to consider in the event that the party uh, is actually receiving a force majeure notice or the like. And with that, I will conclude today's podcast. Uh, Thank you to David, James, Jeremy, and Angelo for your thoughtful insights today. And to our listeners, if you have further questions, please feel free to contact any one of our speakers or to visit our COVID-19 Resource Center at covid19.pepperlaw.com.